0: So if you can't tell yet, we're doing the service a little backwards this morning. Usually we worship at the very beginning, but for the next several weeks, we're actually going to do worship as the second part of the message because we're starting a mini little sermon series this morning called Worshiping the King. And so we're going to do worship second. Um, really quick, before I dive into my message, I just want to tell you guys a testimony that we heard from this church this week that... It's so sweet. Uh, a fifth grader at the church was at soccer practice, a, sixth, a fifth grader from the church was at soccer practice, and one of his teammates came over to him with his phone and said, hey, check this out, and it was pornography on his phone. And the fifth grader from our church slapped the phone out of his hand and said, I don't want to see that, and you shouldn't be looking at it either. <clears throat> and, then, and then he went to his mom and told her, said, hey, this is what happened, blah, 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 blah. And she said, wow, good job. But like, I can't believe you're telling me that. Why why are you telling me? And he he said, well, when Moral Revolution was here, Cole and Caitlin told us that if anyone ever tries to show us pornography, we're just to tell our parents right away. So come on, just go home at this point. Like, that's all we need to hear to be encouraged. All right, so we're doing a sermon series called Following the King, and we're going to be doing it for several years because we're literally going through the entire book of Matthew. It's the longest gospel, and we're, we're not going verse by verse, but we're not going chapter by chapter either. So we're really going to take our time through this entire um, gospel. And the point of that message series, I know I said we're doing Worshiping the King, but I'm zooming out for a second. The point of this sermon series, following the King, is that we, as a church body, would like recommit and reapprehend the message that Jesus is King, and that he, and that we are actually supposed to reorient our entire life around the way He does life, the teachings of Jesus, the way that He lived life, the pace that He lived life, the things He did. We want to just pause as a church body. And um, like after COVID, it's like a reset moment. We want to pause as a church body and say, hey, first and foremost, we are followers, active followers of Jesus. Not Christians, not like supernatural warriors, but we're followers of Jesus. Because the truth is, over the last several years, um, something we've really stewarded this church is supernatural ministry and passionate love for God and we have just been like determined that we would be a supernatural culture. We would be a church that heals the sick, that um, prophesies, that experiences God's presence and all this stuff and now we kind of feel like the that's pretty I hate to say this because it's kind of like as soon as you say this you'll have to you'll regret it but I feel like we're like kind of there if you will. I'm not saying we have, uh, we have reached everything God has for us, like there's so much more healing power he wants us as a church body to access, and so much more accuracy and power in a prophetic ministry, but I, f- I really feel like the message of the hour has shifted from um, the church learning about the gifts of the Spirit, like the big C church, to the church remembering to be followers of Jesus, like, a follower of Jesus. Like, your identity isn't do you prophesy, your identity isn't do you heal, your identity isn't what translation of the Bible you use or what church you go to. Your identity is, do I literally surrender every single part of my life up to Jesus and try and base my life off of Him? And that's, that really excites me. <laughs> and you know, like, part of it for me what, that, that did this in me was <clears throat> the 2020 election, because I was just like so convinced about what I felt and I couldn't back up so many of the things I felt with the life of Jesus. <laughs> and I was just like constantly returning. like, why do I care so much about religious freedom? Why do I care so much about um, the me getting to make my own choices? And like COVID played into this too. Like why am I so obsessed with not being told to wear a mask? Why am I so determined that the government can't tell me this and that and the other things? And I just started to realize like, man, that is not first and foremost a value I have gotten from the gospel. (laughs) That is not a conviction that, that that rose up in me from the teachings of Jesus. That is a conviction that rose up in me from America and from the American way of life. You know, what is our gospel message in America? Don't tread on me. Give me liberty or give me death. And look, I'm not, I, 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 lo- I love America, okay? I love democracy. I love religious freedom. I love all that stuff, okay? Like I'm not a socialist or you know, about to do something weird here. (laughs) But I love Jesus infinitely more. And I'm committed to the way of Jesus infinitely more than to the way of republicanism or to the way of America. And what America needs is the church to apprehend this message. Like at a deep, deep level, to apprehend this idea that it's, Give me Jesus or give me death. Yes. Whatever Jesus says is how I'm going to live. And you know what? Paul, he would have worn a mask. You know why? Because he said, I'm not going to put any stumbling block in front of the gospel. If wearing a mask meant for Paul he could reach more people, he would have put 50 on. And Paul, he, he, he like came onto the scene and he said, look... All these, all these Jews were trying to teach new Christians that they needed to get circumcised and they needed to observe festivals. They needed all this stuff in order to be a follower of Jesus. And Paul wrote these letters to those people saying, look, screw circumcision. Do not observe the festivals. Like, do not do that stuff. That is not what gets you um, salvation. That is not what gets you a relationship with Jesus. But then you know what else we saw in the life of Paul. Sometimes he would observe those festivals. <laughs> and you know what else? He took a disciple under his wing, and the first thing he did was circumcise him. first thing I'm going to say about that is, wow, whole level, whole new level of intimacy, okay, <laughs> was attained there in that discipleship relationship. But my point is this. Why did he circumcise him? Because he didn't care about circumcision. He wanted Timothy to be someone who could reach Jews, and he knew that if he brought an uncircumcised guy into the synagogue, boom, no reaching of the Jews is going to happen. And so Paul lived in this radical tension. Above everything, he realized that he was free in Christ. Like we are free, we should have religious freedom. We should get the choice. I think to wear to decide if I'm going to wear a mask or all that type of stuff or a vaccine or whatever you know, but. I'm not gonna put that stuff on this place in my life where I'm gonna cut myself off from relationship with unbelievers and others and make myself smelly in their nose unless I can do it. That's what Paul, that's what Paul modeled for us. So this is just a random little rant I have. Um, turn with me to Acts. Am I making sense though? Yes. If you feel a little triggered or frustrated, that's okay. I hope you kind of can hear my heart, like I'm not, the last thing I'm trying to be is political right now. The number one thing I'm trying to be is call us, like I'm your pastor, right? (laughs) So do you want me to come up here and just say like random stuff that I think you will like or the stuff that's really, like the the leaders, like what we want to say is like what we really believe as a church body. So it's like, as a pastoral word to you, like, we have to apprehend this idea that it's Jesus above everything, and we need to constantly be examining our values in light of the teaching of Jesus and what Jesus calls us to, and no matter how painful it is to give up something we love, like freedom, um, we, we give that up for the gospel, I'm not saying we give it up in the sense of like, we should just hope that we're not free and we should vote for people that are going to make us not free or something like that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is our heart affection in our freedoms or is our heart affection in following Jesus at all costs? Where's our heart? Okay, Acts seven fifty four. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, meaning he died. That is the type of person I want to be. That is the type of person that I want you to want to be. (laughs) That is what it looks like to elevate Jesus above everything in your life. This is the New Testament picture of worshiping King Jesus. On your knees being stoned and telling God, forgive the people that are stoning me because that's how you behaved. That's the New Testament picture of a worshiper of Jesus. Someone with that level of surrender. So Father, I just pray you'd form that in us as a church. I pray that all of us, Lord, would um, this morning hear, what's my next step in surrendering things that you want me to surrender? And I just speak your blessing, your compassion, your love over this room. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're, talk- we're doing this series, Worshiping the King, and what we're talking about is worship, worshiping Jesus. Which is a major part of following him, right? So, when we, as soon as we start this conversation, the thing that the thing that um, comes to me is this: what, or the, the natural question to ask is this: what is worship? And really, the best way to ask this question would be this: what is a biblical definition of worship? So, I want to spend the next couple the next couple moments investigating this in scripture, what is a good biblical definition of worship? So let's start with the, he, the, uh, the words in the Bible that are translated worship. There's two main words that are translated worship in, um, in the Bible. Shachah and proskuneo. The Hebrew word, so I listened to how you pronounce this like 20 times just so I can impress you guys, okay? <clears throat> Shachah. And then the Greek word is proskuneo. And shaha, let's just say, I feel like so stupid saying it that way, but um, the Hebrew word shaha is translated worship 99 times, but it's used 175 times in the Old Testament, this word. And then the Greek word that's translated worship is proskuneo, and it's translated worship 60 times, and it's actually only even used 60 times. So in the New Testament, it's the exclusive word that's used. And in the Old Testament, um, there's, there's, it's the only word that's used for worship, but it's translated other ways and it means other things. Now, if you look these words up in a Bible dictionary, you're not going to read, it's not going to say worship. These words have a literal meaning, okay? And what their literal meaning is, is to bow down. So the literal meaning of both these words is to bow down. Um, And it would be like, you know, other people would use it to talk about how you would treat a king or someone that, like, you really respected. You would shaha or you would proskuneo, you would bow down to them. So you may ask yourself, why is this significant? The reason it's significant is because what this is telling us about the biblical definition of worship is it is action-oriented. Biblical worship is action-oriented. Literally, what the words mean are an action. Now, why is that significant? Um, that's significant because, listen to some of our English definitions of the word worship. This is from the Oxford Dictionary. The feeling or expression Of reverence and adoration for a deity. Then, Marian Webster, to honor or show reverence for a divine being or supernatural power, to regard with great or extravagant respect, honor or devotion. The key thing to pay attention to here is that word "or." (laughs) Okay, "or" is really significant in this sentence, and it's where the biblical definition of worship and the English definition of worship, take a radical departure. We have biblical definition of worship, which is an action, an action. It's like you cannot separate the biblical word. Okay, I'm talking about the word. The biblical word that's translated worship, you cannot separate it from an action. But the English definition is a, it it, it can be an action. It says an expression or showing reverence, but it also says it can just be a feeling. The feeling of reverence for a deity, to honor a deity. So my point is this, the English definition of worship does not demand action. It doesn't require action for it to be worship. But we just saw that the biblical definition does demand action, right? The word literally means to bow down. So at this point, you know, it could be tempting to make up a definition that was something like um, it's, you know, doing an action towards God. But that doesn't feel right, right? Like we all know that that's not the full picture of worship, it's just an action. Let's look at these verses Hosea 6 6. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice and knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. Well, so what's happening here is the Jews of Israel are just so whack at this point in their nation's history. Like they are supposed to be these people that have received instruction from God on how to do life. And they're supposed to live in the way that that God tells them they should live. And it's supposed to be just amazing and holy and attractive and incredibly different from how all the other nations are acting. But they're doing the things that the other nations who don't worship Yahweh do. Like the rich are lording their wealth over the poor and are taking advantage of the poor. There's systemic massive injustice happening in Israel and abuse of the poor. And then also child sacrifice. (laughs) They're worshiping other gods by sacrificing their children to these other gods. And at the same time as all this stuff, they're going into Yahweh's temple, into God's temple and offering sacrifices to him. And what God's trying to get, he's like, hey guys, I just want to get something really clear to you, okay? That doesn't count. (laughs) That worship is no good to me. It means nothing to me because I actually care about your heart. I desire mercy. I desire you to know me even above your your actions are great, but if your actions aren't based in, a, in knowing me and in mercy towards me, then I don't even want that worship. Let's look at this next. Here's another great example of this. Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is a little song that David wrote to God, or poem, and he wrote it after he slept with another man's wife and then arranged for that um, woman's husband, that man, to be killed in battle. And so, like, the context is, Massive major sin in David's life. And the Old Testament has like really clear instructions for how you're supposed to atone for sin. Like there is a specific module and procedure for how someone should go to God when they've sinned to, in order to become clean again. And, and David is saying, look, even if I do the thing you said, but my heart isn't broken about my action, it doesn't count. My worship is no good. So like my translation of this would be, don't try and manipulate me with fake action. That's what God is saying. Don't think that just your outward behavior um, is honoring and pleasing to me. Your heart matters to me. Your motive matters to me, is what God is saying. So at this point, we see that action is a distinctive of biblical worship, right? Right? We see that the word itself means to bow down; it's an action. But we get this like kind of conflicting message, or this like maybe not conflicting, but I would say it would be a balancing message from Hosea and from David that um, worship isn't just an action; our heart and where our heart's at actually really matters too. So here's a biblical definition of worship that Luke and my dad and I came up with: ascribing worth to God through action. Ascribing worth to God through action. This is what we believe a biblical definition of worship is. Ascribing worth to God through action. So right away, I just want to give this caveat. I do, still th- I do think you can worship God without action. I, I'm not saying that's illegitimate or, or unreal or unbiblical. Like I think you can be walking around just being like loving God in your heart in your consciousness, you know, but what I am saying is this, that's not the biblical picture of worship. That's an extra biblical paradigm about worship that's good and that we should hold on to, but when we're talking about what is biblical worship, there's always an action involved. You can think of it like a coin. Think of worship like a coin. Heads is ascribing worth, so there's a heart thing happening. Tails is an action. Here's a really, here's an application of this for us as a church. We're going to stop inviting you to stand when we start worship. Because we want to give you, we want to make that, even that, a conscious act of worship. It, like, hey, everyone, please stand up and worship. And it's just like, okay, I'll stand up. <laughs> We're robbing you of something really powerful there. You know, like, why are you standing? The reason we've been telling you to stand is because that feels more normal and that feels better in the room, right? Like, hey, everyone, time to do that thing we always do. So stand up. (laughs) You know? But that's not why I'm standing. I'm standing because the king of the universe is worthy of me being on my feet. And it's also amazing to sit and worship, okay? (laughs) Like that's super sweet and honoring to God also. But what's not honoring to God is when you stand because everyone else is standing. You are standing because everyone else is standing. You are not standing because you want to honor God. Unless you say, I'm going to stand up for God. So worship is a two-sided coin. Heads is ascribing worth. Tails is action. So these are two separate things that combine to become one thing. What excites me about this is it makes worship super, super broad. Worship is not just limited to the 35 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever we do in here on Sundays, okay? Worship is so much bigger than that. Look at what Paul says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Romans 12, 1. So what Paul's saying is, it's not, don't just go to the, like he's literally speaking to a church that was half Jew and half Gentile. And he's trying to correct them on their messed up paradigms of worship. And he's literally saying, look guys, he, he's, he's talking to the Jews here who think that to really worship God, you got to go to a temple. And he's saying, no, look, everything you do can be worshiped when you do it unto God. When your heart is towards God, everything can be worshiped. Offer your whole self. And another really sweet thing about this verse is this. You could never, you couldn't offer something as a sacrifice in the Old Testament that wasn't pure. It couldn't be worship if it wasn't pure. Like, if there was one little speckle on it, you say, nope, don't offer that. If there was one little speckle on the lamb, that can't be the sacrifice. So the implications for us of this are massive. We are pure. <laughs> We ourselves are pure. That's why we're able to offer this type of worship to God it's because I am clean, I am pure. So, we have a complete definition of biblical worship, right? Ascribing worth to God through action. But there's something that's even deeper that I want to address here because you know, it's possible to worship out of fear. It's possible to ascribe worth to someone through action not out of love, right? Like, in the Old Testament, we see this all the time. We see people, like an angel shows up and is bringing a message from God, and they fall on their face because they're so terrified. (laughs) They're bowing down, they're shakai you know, they're they're doing it. But it's because they're scared about what's about to happen. Because sometimes when God showed up in the Old Testament, um, it was bad news (laughs) for the people that he was showing up to. So in the Old Testament, so yeah, I, I want to I talk a little bit here about our why we worship now. Are you guys okay, by the way? Okay. It's okay if you're not. Um, I like it better if I feel like you are, but whatever. So, thanks. I want to talk about our motivation now. We have talked about, I, I've tried to paint a clear picture For us like of what worship is, ascribing worth to God through action. It's just kind of like helpful for me if you just say, what the heck is that? You know, like if worship isn't something specific, then it's everything, and then it loses its value, right? So we know now that worship looks like something. It's ascribing worth to God through action, but you can't ascribe worth to something for various motivations. Your motivation, yeah, here's how, here's how I should say it. Your motivation for ascribing worth can be varied. It can, it can be for different reasons. And in the Old Testament, their, their motivation for ascribing worth sometimes was love, but sometimes it was fear. Sometimes it was thankfulness, but sometimes it was terror, <laughs> Sometimes it was out of a revelation of how amazing and strong and big God is, and other times it was like, I'm just scared right now, and this is, you're huge, you're amazing, you're majestic, I'm just gonna get down just to try and not die, you know? But in the New Testament, that isn't, we don't, that doesn't have to be our motivation for worship. It still could be your motivation. Like, don't get wrong, it's not like God just mind-controlled you in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, when you know Jesus, and all of a sudden you just love God and understand Him perfectly. But Here's what Paul says in Romans eight fifteen and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So in the new covenant, man, in the old covenant, worship was, I got to take a drink of water. I wanted to make a very gross noise, but instead I just drank a lot of water. Um, in, the old, in the Old Testament, they were worshiping out of fear and love. They were worshiping out of terror and thankfulness. And part of the reason was because they had old hearts. They had broken, messed up old hearts that couldn't see things clearly. And they didn't have a clear revelation of who God was. Their, their revelation of God was incomplete, Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that the law is the way, the truth, and the life. (laughs) If you've seen the law, you've seen the Father. No. If you've seen the law, you've seen how God deals with broken humanity in a very gracious, loving way. That's what you see. If you see God rescuing people from um, uh, slavery in Egypt, you've seen... You haven't seen God clearly. You've seen a mighty act of God very clearly. You've seen a mighty act of His very clearly, but not God Himself very clearly. Jesus comes, though, and He reveals God perfectly to us. Jesus comes and He shows us what the Father is like in fullness. And so now we worship out of love and out of thankfulness. We worship out of a place of, I see Him clearly not out of I'm scared of what's going to happen if I don't worship or I'm scared of what's going to happen if I don't obey. We worship out of a perception of, oh, how Jesus is incredibly gracious and loving. How could I not worship him? So our motive has become clear and true. Let's, let's look at uh, Jesus kind of opens this up more in, in John. You can turn with me to John 4. John 4, 19 says this. This is a whole cool story where Jesus has just met up with this woman at a well. That doesn't sound right, does it, how I said that? Jesus is met up with a woman. No. Jesus is at a well and a woman shows up. And he's like, hey, give me some water. And she's like, what? I'm not going to give you water. I'm a Samaritan, you filthy Jew. And, and he's like, hey, just give me some water. If you knew what I would give you, you would, you'd, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for the water. And she's like, what? And then he's like, prophesy. And he prophesies over her and it's just like, reads her mail, says things about her that she could, that no one could ever know. And she's just amazed and she's astounded. And so she's like, I have a really smart person in front of me. Will you go to the last slide, actually, Denise? Slide 15. Um, If you knew, dang it, what was I saying, oh yeah. So she's rocked. She can't believe who this guy is. And, and so she's like, hey, I'm gonna take a minute to ask him a question, something I really care about, something I really wanna know the answer to, something that's really important to me. I'm gonna ask him about this. And here's what she says. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, talking about a, a temple and a place to worship that was not Jerusalem, that was a different place. Jerusalem is where Jews thought they should worship. Samaritans thought they should worship somewhere different. But you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And then the next one, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So what he's getting at, he has kind of a threefold, he gives her a threefold answer. First thing he says is this, look, the time is now, like fulfillment is here. The hour is coming and is now here. He's saying, I am here. Like the fulfillment of all time is upon you. Everything you've been looking up into, everything you've been anticipating is now here through me, through the person of Jesus. I am here, the fullness of, so in Revelation, it says that Jesus is the alpha and the omega. So that means that when Jesus showed up, the end showed up. Fulfillment, total, if you, if you know Jesus, you've seen the end of the world, you know, it's crazy what's happening in Ukraine. Oh my gosh, is Putin about to send a nuclear missile? Like, is everything about to end? The end of the world, is that about to happen? You know what you can tell people? I already met the end of the world. I know Jesus. He is the alpha and the, he is the end. I know the end. I have met the end. And so we say, look, filth, um, fullness of time is here. Something very incredibly special is about like, I'm, I'm fulfilling all the temple stuff. And then he says, actually, but Jews have been doing it right. <laughs> like Jews have been doing it right. Samaritans have been doing it wrong. And the worship that's about to start, that's, that's starting right now, doesn't happen in the location. It happens in spirit. When he says in spirit and truth, I think what he's saying is it's not about the location anymore. You're thinking, where do I go to worship? I'm telling you, you're about to be the temple if you start following me. The Holy Spirit, the presence of God that you gather around to worship in the temple, it's going to be inside of you. Worship is now going to be from inside of you. You are the temple. And then in truth, he's saying, You're going to have a clear picture of God now. You're going to see me clearly. You can worship something clear. You can worship something that you see clearly in me, Jesus. So um, we know that. From everything I'm saying, we know that worship is ascribing worth to God through action, but that our heart actually matters. Where our heart is at in that process, that our heart is sincerely towards God is the key thing. Now, just to close my message, very suddenly, I want to um, give you a couple like, kind of tips on, on how, I've grown as a, how I've grown in worship. Denise, will you bring up slide number five? Here's a quote from the founder of the Vineyard Movement. He said, you know, this is a church, Vineyard Church, and this is the guy that started all Vineyard Churches. This is what he said. We in the Vineyard have, from the very outset of our ministry, made worship our highest priority, believing that it is God's desire that we become first worshipers of God. That's God's chief desire for us that we would first become worshipers of His. And the thing is that doesn't happen unintentionally. You don't just wake up one morning and become a worshiper. There's actually a process of intentionality and values and life that you practice to become a worshiper. And I, I'm not saying it's something we, like, um, that we earn as much as it's something that we practice in order to walk in. We co-labor with God to become a worshiper. So here's a couple of my tips, just to end things about becoming a worshiper, because next week my dad will preach, and then Luke is gonna preach for two weeks. And um, so I wanna give you some of my thoughts, some of my practical ideas on how we can grow as worshipers, okay? So here's my first tip. Develop a devotional worship life. To become a worshiper and to, and to live out worship, I wanna encourage us all to develop a devotional worship life. What I mean by that is at home alone with headphones in. Don't make worship just something you do on Sundays when you gather here, but practice, hey, like worship's gonna be part of my routine at home, part of my intimacy with Jesus at home. You know, Jesus frequently withdrew. It's almost like the main picture we see of Jesus' intimacy with God is not corporate, but it's intimate and it's alone. He was constantly drawing away to be with the Father. So um, practice worship. I I remember when I first started doing this, I felt so weird. I was like, can I really put headphones in and go in the basement and sing? Like, it's just so awkward. And, but I I really loved it. And I just never stopped doing it since then. So if you've never tried that out, worshiping alone at home with headphones, you're missing out. Try it, okay? Second, here's my second tip. Worship flows from love and thankfulness. These These are the heart motivations that I try and carry into worship. God, I love you so much. Thank you that you love me. I love that you're so kind and you're so amazing and you're so forgiving. And I just tell him the things I love him. And then I start to thank him. What are things I'm thankful for? And I just start to list things in my mind, in my heart, in my spirit. What am I thankful for, God? Psalm 100 and Psalm 100 verse 4 says, we enter his gates with thanksgiving. So one of the ways to enter into worship is begin to thank God. Here's my third tip. Worship goes to the next level when you surrender everything. When you start to make the conscious heart choice that nothing is off the table for God, the passion in your life for Jesus ramps up a notch. Sometimes during worship, I just try and think about things that I really care about, things I'm really passionate about, things I have a dream for, and I just say, hey, Lord, I don't even care about if my dream happens. Or if you want to totally change how I think my dream is going to happen, that's totally okay. Like, whatever you say, however you want it to happen. This situation that I want to work out this way, Lord, I trust you even if it doesn't. When we start to cultivate that in our heart, we start to think of things that we're really emotional about and we really care about and we surrender them, um, the intensity of passion for God will increase in your life. Second thing, actually, fourth thing. Count much, Wilson? Wilson? Raise your hands and sing with passion often, even when you don't feel like it. Raise your hands in worship and sing with passion like you mean it often and even when you don't feel like it. The temptation would be to think that's fake. But how could it be fake to do what is right? <laughs> like if we were gonna behave rightly, we would just walk around like this all the time. God. <laughs> like he's worth our total surrender and adoration and exaltation at all times, everywhere, always. So whether I'm feeling it or not isn't really the question. The question is, is he worthy of it all the time, no matter how I feel? Here's another good John Wimber quote. Worship is not about personality, temperament, personal limitations, church background, or comfort. It's about God. It's about God, bottom line. In 2016, my wife and I, um, got pregnant for the first time. And we were just super excited. We've been married for about a year. And I've been trying to get her pregnant since day one, okay? <laughs> but finally, you know, it, it happened. And we're just so excited. And we, we go to um, the OBGYN, you know, the, the, the clinic or whatever, to get an ultrasound. And we're super excited to find out all about our baby, his little grapefruitness or whatever, you know, whatever you find out at ultrasound, we were really excited for it. And what we actually found out was that the baby had died, and we were having a miscarriage, and there was no heartbeat, and we were just, you know, devastated. Well, that Sunday, my wife, Jen, was scheduled to lead worship at church. And let me show you what she did. We pull the picture up, Denise? Here's my wife, singing, you are good, you are good, four days after finding out that she was having a miscarriage, okay? Worship is not about how we feel. (laughs) Worship is about the worth of the, the king of the universe and that he's worthy of our love and our hearts at all times. Well, my fifth tip about worship, don't analyze other people you are worshiping with. This is easy, you know, especially in a big room to kind of look around and see, oh, what are they doing? What are they doing? Or, oh, this is annoying. Why are they doing that? Or why is that person down front? Or blah, 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 you know, (laughs) like, just don't do that. Close your eyes and focus on God. It's easy. It's interesting to analyze the room and to see what's happening. You know, like I'm the biggest culprit of this. I look around all the time, but man, that doesn't stir my heart towards affection for God. I'm taking my eyes off of heaven and off of Jesus and onto you guys, and none of you look as good as him. So why would I look at you when I could be looking at Jesus, you know? My sixth tip is this, don't be motivated by experience. You know, you start to experience God's presence, and before you know it, you start to worship just so you can experience his presence. But I wanna tell you, that's an impure, unhealthy, ungodly motive. We don't worship to feel something. We worship because he is worthy of our worship. And it's pretty incredible. He always returns the favor. <laughs> There's not a single time that when I don't focus my heart on God, I don't experience his presence back. So if you just turn your heart towards him, um, you're, just keep your heart towards him. Don't worship worship. It's okay to love worshiping, but don't worship worship. Worship God. And then here's my last tip, and the worship band can start to come out right now um, do regular things unto God. This is probably the most important thing about becoming a worshiper is that you start to just take everyday normal things and do it for the glory of God. And what I'm talking about is something you don't want to do. I don't want to do the dishes. I want my wife to do it later. I want to go read a book or whatever. Well, you know what? I'm going to worship God right now by doing the dishes and by loving my wife in this way. I don't want to play with the kids right now. I'm tired and that's They're a little bit demanding of me, you know? And like, that's annoying to me at this point in the day. I don't want to play with them. But you know what? God told me to love my kids. So as an act of worship to you, Jesus, I'm going to go play with my kids right now. I don't want to prepare a sermon, you know? Like, I. uh, well, you know what? I'm going to do this because this is a task you've given me to be faithful to this church. So I'm going to be faithful now, and I'm going to prepare this sermon as an act of worship to you. So do regular things unto God. Do regular things towards him and it will really stir you as a worshiper, okay? So Father, I thank you so much that you are good and that you are kind. We just tell you we love you and we honor you. Um, We want a greater revelation of your love for us. I ask that during worship right now, you would pour out on all of us a really profound and deep revelation of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.